0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take what we give back to you out of the abundance of what you have given to us, Lord, and you would use it to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God in this world. And Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, I pray that as we read it and as we study it, we would be people who increasingly live as citizens of your kingdom. Lord, what is low in us, I ask that the Holy Spirit would raise up and illuminate. God, where we lack knowledge, I pray that you would give it freely. And God, we ask that by your Spirit, you would empower us to divide your word rightly so that we might understand it, Lord, and we might live in light of its commands and delight in its truths. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So, I don't think I mentioned this before, I am not the senior pastor of this church, my name's Travis, and I am the college and career pastor here at Bay Life, and so I work with the 18 to 20-somethings here at our church. Uh, whether you're actually in college or have started your career or are not doing either, uh, if you fall into that category, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, but the senior pastor of our church, Mark, is currently on his sabbatical for the summer. <clears throat> and uh, it was it was cool for me because I was able to spend a little bit of time with Mark in Uganda over the summer as we were and doing some missions work there, and partnering with some of the organizations that Baylife works with. Some of them you may be familiar with. One such organization is the Village of Hope. And essentially, Village of Hope is something of a boarding school and also kind of an orphanage, and they are directing their efforts specifically towards children in Uganda who are the victims of the civil war that took place there, uh, that you may be familiar with through a lot of, a lot of awareness campaigns. Um, many of these children... Uh, have just grown up thinking that there is no hope for their future, that they will never be educated, that they will never be loved, that they will never have a normal life. And the commitment of Village of Hope is to educate these children, to provide them with occupation training. Uh, There's a trade school there as well as a primary school. Uh, They're put in homes with house parents who love them and care for them. But more important than all of those things, although they are important, is that at the Village of Hope, the gospel is preached. And these children are told that as much as the staff at Village of Hope loved them, Christ loves them all the more and has demonstrated it in the fact that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And so we partner with Village of Hope, but we also partner with another organization called ALARM, which stands for African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. And ALARM's commitment is to train up local African pastors in Bible and theology and apologetics and counseling so that they can go to their villages and their tribes and their people groups and they can preach the gospel with effectiveness and clarity. And for me, it's super encouraging to know that we as a church are committed to things like that, not simply here in Brandon, Florida, but across the world, fulfilling the commission of Jesus, that we would go and we would make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, this is what we have been talking about over the summer, is fulfilling the Great Commission. We've been in the middle of this series called Get Out There, and we have been walking through the book of Acts and seeing how the early church fulfilled the commandment of Jesus as they went to the nations with the good news of the gospel. And really, we're asking this question, what does it look like for us to do the same, to realize that the commission that Jesus offers is not a suggestion but an imperative, and to realize that... Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth are all very different regions in the world in which Christ lived. And so we don't necessarily need to go to Uganda to fulfill the Great Commission, although that is a wonderful thing. We're asking the question, what does it look like for us when we step off of Bay Life's campus to carry the gospel with us over a cup of coffee with a friend, over expense reports at work, over a good meal in someone's home? You'll remember last week that we were in Philippi. We were looking at how Paul and Silas and those who were with him carried the gospel to the Philippians. And there are two women that Shane, our high school pastor, discussed last week who first encounter the power of the gospel. One of them is a woman named Lydia. And what we know of Lydia from the text is that she's a seller of purple linen and fine goods, which means that Lydia is probably very wealthy. Uh, Purple in this day and age Uh, in which the text is written, is something that kings wore. So she is selling goods to kings and making a significant profit. We're told that she's a God-fearer, which means that she worships the God of Israel, and Paul proclaims the gospel to her, and she and her household are converted and saved, and we see the gospel in Philippi go to the wealthy. But there's another woman in this text whose name is not given, and we're told that she is a slave girl. We're also told that she is not simply your regular slave girl in the ancient Near East, but that she is possessed by a spirit of divination. This is an evil spirit that is giving her the ability to discern things that the average person could not discern. And at some point, she discerns that Paul and Silas are in Philippi on a mission, and she begins to follow them through the streets, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way of salvation. Now, I have no idea why a demon has decided to be a spokesperson for missionaries. Uh, But there is is something to the idea of guilt by association. Uh, it, It is probably likely that the people in Philippi have seen this girl. They know what she's about. They know that there's something spiritual going on with her. They're probably afraid of her, as was often the case. And so as she begins to follow Paul and Silas around and herald their mission... I would venture to say many of the Philippians say if you're connected with her we want nothing to do with what you're saying. And so Paul realizes this and he turns to the girl but speaks to the spirit after several days and he says I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very hour the spirit leaves the girl. And so we come to our text for the day in the book of Acts chapter 16 we're in verses 19 through 34. Now At the College and Career Ministry, uh, we've got a couple people who are just super gifted in a few different areas, and we had a guy who was with us for a very long time who was a really gifted voice actor, and he's actually just moved to pursue voice acting, and so we started to ask the question, hey, what would it look like to use Jordan's gift uh, within the context of our time together in worship? And we were kind of poring over this idea, or at least I was, and I remembered that Paul gives this commandment to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, And I said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. It's in the Bible. And Jordan, you're a pretty good voice actor. Would you be interested in just reading scripture for us during our worship services? And so we have taken to reading large sections of scripture as we respond to them in worship. But one of the things that we do is when God's word is read, out of reverence for it, because we want to show that we are attentive to what is being said as God speaks to us through the word he has inspired, we stand as the word of God is read. And so I'm going to import that from Sunday night to Sunday morning. And as I read our text for the morning, I'm going to ask, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? So we are in the book of Acts, chapter uh, chapter 16, verses 19 through 34. It says this, But when her owners, this is the slave girl's owners, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them out into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here.' The jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas." Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them at that hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So, Our text for the morning essentially traces the fallout of where we left off last week. In our last time together with Shane, we see that Paul has looked at this girl who is possessed by a spirit of divination, and he, in the name of Jesus, has driven this spirit out of her. And we pick up in the immediate aftermath of that. What we're told in verse 19 is that her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seize Paul and Silas, they drag them to the marketplace. So, and perhaps last week as you were reading this text, you thought that this girl was maybe something of like a a wandering prophet. And she's just walking through the marketplace making sort of spooky comments to people. Uh, but, But what we glean from this is that it is not simply that she is possessed by a demon and has this spirit of divination and can discern things that other people can't, but that she is owned by a party of people who are profiting off of this skill. She's the equivalent of like the Philippian Miss Cleo. Call me now for your free tarot card reading if anyone remembers that infomercial. But ultimately, what, what we see happening here is a group of people profiting off of this girl's spiritual destruction. In her spiritual ruin, they are turning a financial profit. As she anguishes away under the oppression of this evil spirit, they are using her misery for the purpose of making money. And so when Paul goes forward into Philippi, and he carries with him the gospel in all of its fullness and all of its power. He breaks this system in half. And it makes the people who are making money off of her very angry. And this isn't particularly uncommon in the book of Acts or in the whole of the New Testament. You'll remember that when Paul and his associates go to preach the gospel to the Pharisees, they're outraged, and they try to stone Paul to death. They're offended by what Paul has said. You'll notice At Mars Hill, at the Oropagus, as Paul is speaking to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and as he proclaims the gospel, they're not necessarily outraged. They just think it's utterly absurd. They're not particularly offended. They just think that it's ridiculous, except for a few people. And you'll know later on in this text, as we continue to walk through it, that when Paul goes to Ephesus and he proclaims the gospel in this city, that the people who have been worshiping idols who received the gospel, stop worshiping idols. They get rid of their idols and they stop buying new ones. And the idol makers in the city are outraged because they've been profiting on the spiritual destruction of these people and the money just dried up. And so they actually lead a riot in Ephesus and try to have Paul killed. It's led by a man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith. And he leads the crowd and chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, which is the God to whom they were building their idols. It happens over and over And over and over again, when the gospel comes into contact with the systems and the kingdoms of this world, it causes controversy. And I think this is instructive for you and I. It's an important point for us to recognize. The gospel will always be offensive to the systems of this world. The gospel is not interested in taking the fallen systems of Adam's race and maybe making them a little bit nicer. The gospel cannot come into contact with the kingdom of hell and leave it standing. It will raise it to the ground. And and the reason I bring this up is because we live in a day and age where you and I are watching the death of cultural Christianity. You see it on the TV. You see it in the way that people vote. You see it in who is elected. And you see it in the culture around us, the ambient culture which we find ourselves. And I'm afraid that Christians will see the death of cultural Christianity as the death of gospel Christianity. But I want you to understand that gospel Christianity has never been accepted by the culture. And cultural Christianity is not the same as the gospel. Cultural Christianity is interested in the gospel as a means to an end. Here are five steps to having a better marriage. Here are seven ways and principles from the Bible that will give you a better business. The gospel is a tool in our hands to make our pretty good lives a little bit better. And people can hear that. Yeah, I want to have a nicer marriage. Yeah, I would love to make more money and have a better business. Sure, I can receive that cultural form of Christianity. Gospel Christianity says, repent of your sins, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. And that is not easy to receive. And it has never been easy to receive. And we need to recognize that. The gospel cannot encounter the kingdoms and the systems of this world without burning them to the ground. And that is an offense. Everybody wants their good life made a little better. Very few people want to turn and die to themselves and repent. Paul is not interested in cultural Christianity in Philippi. He is interested in gospel Christianity. If he were interested in cultural Christianity, he would turn to the owners of the slave girl and say, here's five principles for running a better fortune-telling business. He's not interested in that. And I think many of us recognize that the gospel is offensive. We recognize that it rubs up against the edges of our culture, and it causes controversy. And the way I see it, there's at least two ways in which we respond to that reality. There are those of us who see that the gospel is offensive, that that it is controversial, controversial, we recognize it, and we step back. And we begin to advocate this sort of um, pragmatic universalism where we say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but that's just what works for me. And if what works for you is working, then you're more than welcome to do that. And we can talk about it if you want, but I'm not trying to force anything on you. And we, we slowly pick apart the aspects of the gospel which would rub up against the edges of our culture. And in effect, we destroy the core tenets of Christianity out of fear of conflict. But you can fall on an equally opposite side of the spectrum and be just as wrong. Because there are those of us who say, yes, the gospel is offensive, but we're the sort of people who consider a fun afternoon one that has been spent drinking coffee and arguing with people on Facebook. This is our idea of a good time. We love controversy. We love debate. We love abrasiveness. We love to see people get told off. We love to watch people get crushed in arguments. And so we carry the gospel forward perfectly fine with the fact that it's offensive, but we compound its offensiveness with our disrespect. And then ultimately, somebody finally snaps, and then we step back and say, I'm being persecuted for righteousness. No, you're being a jerk, and you're getting what you deserve. (laughs) Paul has words for people who function in this way he has words for the people who will be ministers of the gospel in second timothy chapter 2 he says this the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome he must be kind to everyone able to teach not resentful opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that god will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil which has taken who has taken them captive to do his will Brothers and sisters, may we repent of the times in which we have veiled the gospel because we were afraid of conflict. May we also repent of the times in which we have placed a stumbling block in the way of the cross because we are so in love with confrontation. May we always be gentle, not quarrelsome, kind, and gently correcting our opponents as we faithfully proclaim, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. It's for this gospel that Paul finds himself in prison. And you can trace through the text the legal proceedings which Paul finds himself in. He casts the demon out. The owners see that their fortune-telling business is going under. They seize Paul and Silas and drag them to the marketplace before the rulers. The magistrates see Paul and Silas, and the men presenting them say, these men are Jews disturbing our city and advocating customs that are not lawful. The crowd joins in attacking them. The magistrates strip them naked in order that they be beaten in public. And there is this downward spiral of what appears to be mob justice. Paul's brought along with Silas before the leaders. The crowd joins in attacking them. They're stripped naked. They're beaten. They're thrown into the inner parts of the prison, and they are locked up in the stocks. Do you notice something missing from these legal proceedings? Maybe a trial or an opportunity to respond to the accusations or anything of the sort. The accusation is made, the crowd whips themselves into a frenzy, and they are found beaten and bloodied and broken in the midst of a Philippian jail. It's for this reason that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes the incident, and he says that he was shamefully treated in Philippi. Because he was imprisoned and he was tortured without any sort of a legal process. There is no question that this is an abuse of justice. That this is not a fair representation of what any legal system should look like. And Paul is perfectly aware that what has happened to him is unjust. But come to verse 25 with me. And notice, after they are put in jail, at about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. Now, I don't know if you maybe missed this when we read through it together. Maybe you were kind of freaked out by the fact that we were all standing. But this is an astounding thing to say, that Paul and Silas, through their black eyes and their missing teeth and their broken bodies, are in prison and they are singing hymns to God and praying. Because I just consider the way that I respond in my own life to situations in which I feel that I have been wronged. And it normally, or normally, I react in a couple ways. I post passive-aggressive song lyrics on Instagram or Facebook. (laughs) I go to checkers and I eat my feelings. I complain to everyone and everything around me, including my cat, about how miserable things are and how frustrated I am by it. Hymns and prayers are not my response. But what we see from Paul and Silas is not them pressing their face through the bars of the prison and shouting at the guard. It is not them yelling between the brick walls of their cells at the other prisoners. It's not them trying to start some sort of an overthrow of the Philippian system. They don't have the tin cup that they're clanging against the bars of their cell. They are singing and they are praying in the midst of overwhelming injustice. And notice what happens as a result of that. At midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners are listening to them. I had a friend, a very dear friend, who in his mid-twenties developed brain cancer. Newly married within a year or two, Not working a job in which he could afford to pay for chemotherapy and brain surgery and all the things that would come with it. Not making enough money to where he could take the months off of work that would be necessary for his recovery. Not even a a really sure, surefire guarantee that he would survive even if he did all the things necessary. But he knew the Lord. And he and his wife walked through a situation that was objectively horrendous and absolutely miserable with a grace the likes of which I have never seen. And the people in his life who were not believers looked at this and looked at how they carried this cross and said, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. It still freaks me out, but I am astounded at the way that you are walking through suffering. Brothers and sisters, you may be in this room right now and you find yourself in such a prison as the one that Paul finds himself in one which you are not in because justice has been served. You have a spouse who you love who is ready to walk out on your marriage. You have children who you have done your best with who are walking away from the Lord and dishonoring you with their lives. You have a job that you worked hard at and you've just lost it because of downsizing and on and on and on it goes. We all find ourselves in Philippian prisons. But hear me when I say that the unbelieving world, its eyes never rest more heavily on you than when you walk through suffering. And whether you bear that cross with grace or not is a significant testimony to how convinced you are of the fact that we say our hope is not simply in this life only. There was a time in the history of the church in which uh, the faith was not just taught in sermons and not just taught in Sunday school, but it was taught through something called a catechism. And some of you may have been raised in the Catholic Church or the Lutheran tradition or uh, Presbyterian Church, and so you've learned uh, one of these catechisms. And for those of us who don't know, essentially a catechism is a series of questions and answers that are meant to be memorized. Uh, And it starts with children. Children memorize the catechism. Adults memorize the catechism. And each question and each answer outlines a significant portion of the Christian faith. So that if somebody should ask you a question, who is God, you can respond God is the creator of everything and everyone, including me. He is perfect and infinite, and his power is perfection and glory. You can can just run through it. You have a sound, orthodox answer to the basic questions of what we believe. There's a a pretty prominent catechism that came to rise during the Reformation called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism is, I think, 100-something questions and answers. But it begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the beginnings of the answer to that question that every Christian would memorize was that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the powers of the devil people would memorize that and meditate on it and think deeply about it. And I recall hearing an an instance in which there was a Christian who, he was a Christian pastor, uh, and during his pastoral ministry, one of his elders fell ill, and it became increasingly apparent that this elder would not survive, that I believe it was cancer, that it, it was not curable, that he was on the edge of death. And by all external circumstances, there is no hope left in his life at least if his hope is tied to the things of this life. And this pastor, he he recalls in this interview I heard, sitting down with, we'll say his name is Greg, he sits down with Greg, he sits at the foot of his bed, he can hear the machines that are keeping Greg alive, he knows that he hovers on the brink of death, and he asks Greg this one question, Greg, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And Greg, through the ebbing pain, of his final days, responds what he learned from the very beginning of his Christian walk, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And from his deathbed, he testifies to the truth that our hope and our comfort in this life is not rooted in circumstances which are transient but instead is rooted in the finished, perfect, and eternal work of the Son of God. And in so doing, he bears witness to the fact that we as the people of God do not have hope in this life only. If that were the case, we of all men should be pitied. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And from the Philippian prison, Paul and Silas bear witness to that truth as they sing and they pray in the midst of incredible injustice. And the people are listening. We go on in verse 26 and we read, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, we may read this and be struck by how strange this is. Like, why wouldn't he just run after the prisoners? Um, A couple things are probably contributing to his sort of suicidal bent at this point. Uh, One, he's sleeping and is woken up by an earthquake. Uh, That's never happened to me. I live in Florida, but I would be horrified by that. Two, he's sleeping on the job when he should be watching the prisoners. Three, he wakes up from sleeping on the job through an earthquake and realizes, or at least thinks, that all of them have escaped. And this is essentially a death sentence for a Roman soldier because he's failed in his duties. And so he is likely thinking, I'm going to spare my family the embarrassment of having to watch me go through trial and bring dishonor to them. I'm just going to end it now. So he takes his sword out and is on the verge of killing himself. And in this scene that echoes Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, Paul cries out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourselves or yourself, for we are all here. That to me is astounding. Paul doesn't simply say, Silas and I are here. He says, we are all here. Paul and every other person sitting in that prison listening to he and Silas sing and pray, have stayed even as the doors are open and the shackles are loosed. When I consider this, I just think of my own life and how many times I try to weasel out of situations that are uncomfortable. So like when I was a freshman in college, I was 19, and senior year of high school, my parents had co-signed so that I could have a debit card because they were wise to not trust me with a credit card. And I don't know if you've been on USF's campus, uh, but at USF, the snack machines no longer just take change and dollar bills. You can swipe your card to get snacks. Uh, And (laughs) I didn't keep a checkbook, so it was great, because I would just swipe my card and never see money disappear. It was just like a bottomless pit of snacks while I killed time on campus. So a couple hours before class, I'll have a couple bags of chips, I'll drink a soda, I'm a little hungry, just keep swiping the card, and it's like nothing ever happened. Until one morning, because I was still living at home at this point, uh, my mom walks in. and She says, Travis, have you checked your bank account? And I said, no. I didn't actually respond in that way, but mentally this is what I was thinking. And she says, you know, you're overdrafted by $400, right? And I woke up at this point. And here's what happened. I hadn't overdrafted my account with $400 worth of Frito-Lays. What had happened is that I had overdrafted my account with about $10 worth of Frito-Lays on 10 different occasions and got hit with 10 different overdraft fees that compounded to a negative $400 balance in my bank account. And so talked with my friends about it and said, hey, I'm probably not going to be able to hang out for a while because I don't have any money anymore. I have negative money right now. And then I sat down with my dad a day or two later, and I said, dad, I think I figured out what I'm going to do with the overdraft situation. Sure, son. What are you going to do? Well, so I was talking to my friend, and he told me that I can literally just close the bank account and nothing happens. (laughs) And my dad said, interesting. I said, so I think I'm just going to close it and open a new one. Like, you know, just make sure this doesn't happen again. And my dad said, son, you can close the bank account if you want, but only after you've paid every last penny of what you overdrafted. And I said, Dad, you don't understand. I can close it and nothing happens. And he said, Travis, you don't understand. You signed your name to a document saying that you would pay these things and your word will be your bond. And in that moment, I learned something, painfully so, at the cost of about $400, that integrity matters most when it costs you something. And I just consider... In our own lives, the number of times where we encounter something that we feel is uh, unjust or doesn't pertain to us, and we just sort of circumvent it. We say things like, the sign says it's a 15-mile-an-hour road, but this is obviously a 45-mile-an-hour road. (laughs) If they really looked at it, or it's 3 a.m., and there's a red light, and there's no cars coming, obviously no one would care if I just went. Or there is no crosswalk here, but there should be a crosswalk. So like Lewis and Clark, I am going to forge a way across this uh, blacktop and make a way. We'll just skip the crosswalk idea. And, And these are simple things, but again and again and again, when we feel like the rule is foolish or unjust or unfair to us, we just circumvent it. And I would venture to say that for Paul and Silas sitting in this prison, they're saying, we were beaten, we were assaulted, we were held without a trial, the door is open, the shackles are off, I'm leaving. I don't deserve to be here So I'm leaving. But they don't do that. Not only do they not do it, but they've had such an influence on the people around them in their short time in prison that nobody does it. To me, this is a testimony to the integrity of the early Christians, that even in the face of laws that are unjust, they will conduct themselves with integrity. And it's because of that... It's because Paul and Silas have walked with an integrity in in an instance of incredible injustice that the Philippian jailer comes to Paul. He falls down at his feet. He brings them out of the cell and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, here's five steps to a better marriage. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we're told that he and the whole of his household believed. But I want you to understand that the only reason Paul had that platform is because he built it through his actions. He built it through his steadfastness and suffering. He built it through his integrity in the midst of injustice. And from these planks, he was able to stand and to proclaim the gospel to a man who desperately needed it. And on that day, salvation came to the jailer of Philippi. Christian, hear me. Nothing that you do in your life is insignificant to your gospel witness. Every single thing that you do and the way that you conduct yourself are the materials upon which you will build the platform that you must stand and preach Christ and Him crucified. So it is my prayer for us as a church and for you and I as brothers and sisters in the Lord that we would walk with integrity of heart even when it is costly. And that if you find yourself in the midst of suffering, that you would suffer well, knowing that your one hope in life and in death is not that things will always go well or go your way, but that you are not your own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the way that you carry yourself in suffering and in walking with integrity, it is my prayer that we as a church would build such a platform upon which to stand that the gospel would echo through our city in power as it did on this day in Philippi. Let's pray. Father, the things that you command of us in your word, the things that you demonstrate for us in the life of Paul and Silas, they are not things that come naturally to us. These are not things that we will do on our own strength, and these are not things that we will be able to, by our own power, carry out for more than maybe a few days. And so we need your spirit as we do with all things. To convict us, to comfort us, to call us to righteousness, to sanctify us, to transform us into the image of your son. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would take everything that we have studied, everything that we have looked at from your word, and apply these things to us. Bring us into increasing conformity to the image of Christ. God, I pray that you commission us now and you send us out into the world to preach the gospel. To all nations. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.